Hey everyone, it's time to come together at Anthology Together, July 12th through 15th, 2021 at the Gaylord Texan Resort and Convention Center. In person, yes, I said it, Elizabeth and I are excited to announce that this is the first time we will ever meet in person. The Edip Experience will be there recording. It's going to be exciting. You can register at anthologytogether.com and enter the promo code EDUPPROMO with only the D being lowercase. That's E-D-U-P-P-R-O-M-O with only the D lowercase for $75 off your registration. It's time to come together, ladies and gents. We'll see you at Anthology Together. Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Leiba, and producer Elvin Freitas bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Guys, this is Joe just popping in to ask if you've signed up for your free marketing consultation with MDT Marketing yet. If you haven't, head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, get your free consultation today. Don't do it alone. Find the right partner. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond. This is Dr. Joe Salustio, always with me. She's amazing. She always makes an entrance when she enters the room. Her name is Liz Liba. Liz, how are you? I love that you said she's amazing like that, because it made me think of actually my Instagram uh screen name, which is your queen to be. And when you said she's amazing, it just made me think of she's your queen to be. So you can, you can keep doing that. You can keep that one. It's funny that you mentioned that. And I never put two and two together until now, but on a previous episode, and I can't remember who it was with, we did discuss that someone had reached out to you to find them a wife on LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's possible i'm wondering if it's if, if it's possible that they saw your instagram handle your yes. queen to be and thought right. well if she's <laughs> someone's queen to be perhaps she could find me a queen to be you know what i'm so glad you put that together because i it has baffled me why not just one person but multiple people have reached out to me on linkedin and ask me to find them a wife. I cannot understand what's happening, but maybe that's what it is. Maybe I mean, they're... it must have to something to do with your amazing social justice work. That just screams finding me a wife, right? That's social justice, find me a wife. I, I, I don't understand why you are being know. solicited to find people. Uh, I mean, I'm I don't know sure. if this is a future business model. Maybe. I have Black Culture Academy my black history platform. I have black women handle business, my directory for black women entrepreneurs. Now you're queen to be my dating. You're queen to be.com. It feels like someone has that URL already in I'm another sure country, another country <laughs> and, and somewhere where we don't want to go. That's for sure. 
Oh um, my gosh. Poor, this, this, this said Dr. Pretty Cubby because I don't think I can take this conversation anymore. Well, before I bring her in, I do want to say one more thing. And but as this yes. episode, because it's the two of you, um, by the way, our guest, and let me bring her in now and then I'll tell her why I wanted to wait to bring her in. That, none of that made sense of everything that I just said. But anyway, oh, her name is Dr. Lynn Pretty and she's president of Claremont Lincoln University and my boss. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, but I, I'm coming up with handles now for um, Liz's new business. <laughs> and I was thinking queen up doesn't quite work. Matchup's probably been taken. Probably. Um, spouse up, not sure. So I, I'm working on that. I love I'm working it. On it for I, you. I, and, I love and, it. And Liz, Thank you. you just, you interview too, you bring them on and, you know, and the audience decides. I it's love like, that. I'm it's here like for the old game show. Like, you know, um, you know, uh, why do you think you deserve a wife? Door yeah. number one. I mean, yeah. it's really horrible, but you know, it's I'm fun. here for it. I'm here for it. You know, I mean, everyone deserves love. You know, what, what are you going to say? So, well, as you both know, <laughs> a bit of personal, uh, getting a little personal here before we get into the reason uh, and, and the great work at Claremont Lincoln University, you both know it. It'll be a month or so before this episode comes out, but I have moved over the weekend. I've moved yes. houses. I've moved a family of four. Yes. Lynn, uh, my, my amazing um, boss, has given me complete flexibility to move this family of four uh, that I have. Um, she's been amazing and, and accommodating. Uh, moving is, is uh, not easy. Yeah, I hate I, moving. I will tell you that my my shins are all beat up, right? So hmm. oh, here comes my son. He's coming in while I record, but my uh -oh. shins are my shins are all beat up. Not only do I get kicked in the Aww. shins uh, while I move, I get kicked in the shins by Liz on the Edip Experience podcast. Oh, there he is. Uh oh. Uh oh. I, we get a little. So getting kicked in the shins all over, and my kids are kicking me in the shins all together. So there. Oh man. There you go. But you but, made it. You made it. I made it, and you Lynn was a, a key piece in that. And wonderful. You know, Lynn, Lynn, uh, that that brings me to the reason all that build up. And my first question is, you know, you're operating an online institution, and um, the staff has been working remotely. By the way, do you guys hear that screaming? We do. I, I, I bribed my son and bought him Robux. So he's in the other room, literally spending Robux all over Roblox universe. So I'm, I'm not probably at least an hour. And I'm not editing that out. That's the real, <laughs> that's the real of the edit experience. That's the real. He, he, he started at $20 and my husband was like, no. And he came down to $10 worth of Robux for the hour. There so that was go. worth $10 of Robux for us to get an hour of peace so that I could record with you. So. <laughs> well, there, there you go. And so, and so Lynn, back to my question, we, you know, we're, we're operating, we've been on, operating online university, we've had staff and faculty move uh, remote, people have had life come up. And now as we're starting to circle back around to a new normal of some kind, you are really engaging staff in a inclusive way to find out what the future is going to look like. Talk to me about what you think the future might look like and why you've set the line in the sand to say, I'm engaging everyone in this decision-making. That's easy. Cause I don't think we really know. I think other leaders who are saying, nope, I know we're all going to be back in the office on September 1st or right after Labor Day. And it'll go right back the way it was. I think that's, that's an easy answer and a traditional response. And I actually think we have to listen. It, um, for me, leadership right now is about stepping back, learning, and figuring out something, 
something new is out there, a different way of doing higher ed, a different way of organizing the workforce. Imagine we have this opportunity that you could actually weave together high quality life with more time with kids, family, pets, whoever it is, high quality work because you're not having to do a two hour commute and now you can dedicate different hours and time to your customers, your students, whoever you might be. And then some other kind of quality of life's work as opposed to just a work life. So there's something here we can create that's new. And so I'm beginning to hear strands of it coming out. There's a chorus that I'm hearing pretty loudly right now, but there's some melodies that are very different after this year and a half. And so I'm listening for these different melodies. And I really think we can put together a very different way of living and working and talking and growing together. And that's, that's what I'm striving for in the online workplace. You know, you were, I, I, for, for people that don't know Lynn, by the way, this is, Lynn and I have worked together for a while and she um, is a futurist and she always looks towards the future of you know, what's this going to look like in the future? What's higher education going to look like? And for those that don't know, you spent 14 years, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, as the VP of accreditation services for the nation's largest uh, regional accrediting body, the Higher Learning Commission. A, a whole series of roles, the last six as, the v, as a VP, correct? Okay. Yes. And so you've seen, you saw really a lot of change through higher education and then we get hit with something like coronavirus. And the message that has been coming out is more change is needed. Models are changing. Institutions might be in trouble. We have to rethink what higher education is and how it's delivered and who it's delivered to and what the equity looks like as we move forward and how leadership is changing. What is your sense now is where you know, at the tail end, hopefully, I keep saying that hopefully of the coronavirus, we've learned we've we've listened we've learned but we we there is change that needs to come what's your sense put on your accrediting body hat here for a minute lynn and talk about how model change is going to to play its part in the higher ed ecosystem so uh, let me back up and first say you know when we think about the higher ed ecosystem we have to remember the extraordinary diversity of institutions and there's not a single answer. And that's where accreditors, the regional accreditors, now we just call them accreditors, institutional accreditors, um, really got it right. They really valued that diversity, the mission, and they really tried to provide the environment for quality, for improvement and for assurance. Feds kind of clamped down, needed to for a variety of reasons, but we have to remember that the accreditors are dealing with your Big Ten, your Ivy League research U's, your community colleges, your teeny tiny culinary or seminary institutions, ranging in size from 12 students to several hundred thousand students. So we, we have to remember that when we talk model change, it'll look different for different types of institutions. So I'm gonna kind of focus in on model change for online, for institutions with working adults. And I think community colleges, um, you can go back to a 2015 article I wrote or a chapter in a book called The Urgency of Now, Equity and Excellence. And it really laid out the need for the accreditors to push innovation hard. Now, do I think they have been able to do that? Not as well as they would like because of all the regulatory environment. So the employers are, and the adults are, and our, our customers, our students are. Just look at how they are really price sensitive, how they are focused on it being practical. And so when we're looking at model change, 
I actually think the idea of an institution that students go to and they learn the specific subjects and degrees and the focus on the classic assignments and the individuality of grading and learning, I think that's got to change. And here's, and, and I've been trying to come up with an analogy and I'm thinking of it more like an embedded journalist, right? You know what embedded journalists are, right? So well, you like the, like, like the, uh, the, like the guys that'll go in, you know, uh, uh, undercover, you know, undercover and do a whole drug ring report, you know, and they go to the, that kind of stuff you're talking about. Yeah. They actually live in the world, the real world, as opposed to reporting on the world as they see it from the outside. Right. So yeah, I was going to say that an embedded journalist was like Liz or I working from our homes and never leaving, but that I, that might be a different kind of embedded. Don't you think Liz? Yeah, yeah I am in my I'm bedroom. <laughs> I'm in my bedroom. Does that count? But go ahead, Len. Sorry. Anyway, anyway, it could be that too. I mean, model change could be that learning and living is in the bedroom. I don't. Oh, I we should probably not go there, you guys. Let's shift gears. Embedded journalists. So, um, I would love to see. Let me give you an example. I would love to see Claremont Lincoln University. I would love us to stop doing just individual degrees. You know, student comes to us, learning's individual, that one student is getting his or her degree and we're trying to make it practical and focused on work. And Clement does a spectacular job of building leadership and an ecosystem or a mindfulness dialogue change, but it's all about the individual. I wanna be embedded with where the corporations, the nonprofits, uh, choose any industry, any business, any churches, really anything. I want to be embedded there with a whole team that wants to learn together to create incredible change so that that model change is really about learning together to create the right type of change together so that we can actually accomplish abundant, thriving living for everyone in our society. As Let well me interrupt you. Before, yeah, go ahead. And Liz, before you jump in, when you say learning together, are you saying multiple people learning from the same company at the same time as a group? Is that what you mean? Exactly. Exactly. Imagine. So look, we're trying to, you know, we have this fabulous new master's in public administration. We're trying to get it out there to city managers and we have individual people taking it, right? But imagine if the city manager plus the parks and rec person plus the key vendor plus the housing person plus the diversity or the, uh, the um, equity person, imagine a team of four taking it together. The entire curriculum is infused with three major issues they have to solve for their city and their citizens. And as part of the degree, they do it together and they make the difference together, whatever that difference is. Instructional designer Liz Leiba, I think you might have a few questions here. I have a lot of questions because this actually is an area of passion for me as well, because I've typically worked in community colleges and career colleges. Uh, I worked for University of Phoenix, which is accredited by Higher Learning Commission. And I think one of the things that those non-traditional students tend to crave is very practical, hands-on career focused and career driven curriculum. I think there are some schools, particularly some of the online schools that have less traditional models that are able to deliver that to a certain extent. But like you said, uh, sometimes the transformative just across the entire sector, uh, the nature of curriculum doesn't seem to be able to keep up because 
we know from the internet running a mile a minute and news comes out and, and everything is at breakneck speed with the ability for us to be able to grab knowledge as we are able to from our cell phones and, and literally from our social media feed uh, over the past, even in the past year since we've been uh, locked down, I've seen, I feel as though it's accelerated that. So how do you think, and I think from, uh, I'll take my cue from Joe as well, from putting on your accreditation hat, how are we going to be able to, as a sector, implement some of those things that you're talking about, being more responsive to students' needs, being able to look at hands-on, practical-based, uh, collaborative learning, what the employees want, what the students want, how are we as a sector going to be able to do that and be more agile so that we can deliver a product that students feel is better serving them in terms of return on investment? So how, I think, you know, I honestly believe that there are people at every institution, particularly in community colleges, who are figuring out the how, and we've got to get the leaders to step back and listen and loosen up to do some experiments with that. So let me give you an example of how we're going to do that with the accreditors and how we're going to do that with colleges. Right now, community colleges have, have taken up some pretty serious blows in COVID, particularly with enrollment. Now, we can be all upset about that, but usually an industry will rise to the challenge and they will really become innovative during that crisis time. I think we will see that. Community colleges have always been more nimble, more adaptable, and more grounded in, in actual career-focused work. So if it means, I, and I think, the, so that's, that's one piece. The accreditors are being pushed hard because colleges are in financial turmoil and they're having to look at mergers, acquisitions, novel partnerships. And it's all seen as a problem as opposed to new models emerging that actually could provide whole new solutions that integrate, back to the embedded idea again, integrate businesses, local community businesses, small to large industry, whatever they might be, with the institution and the learning and the regional creditors figuring out ways to allow completely different patterns of what it means to educate and what it means to learn and how we assess that learning. So let me give one specific example. Think of all of the things that Google and Amazon and, and um, edX and Coursera and all of those are doing straighter line all of these fabulous even the state university is doing to um, do training programs right and as and if someone gets a Google or an Amazon credential or a Logitech credential whatever it might be it's not going to be too long before businesses recognize that credential right so suddenly you've got someone who may have three or four of those and they may only have let's say they don't even quite have an associate degree. But now over 10 years, they've really gained all these skills. They've become a pretty doggone leader. And now they've gotten elected to their city council. And now they're even becoming a, a pro tem mayor. Not an associate degree, but they won a master's degree. And already we're beginning to see how that career piece is pushing the model to challenge what I think for a whole subset of the career-focused colleges is going to be a completely different look. And that is the idea that you get the associate, 
then the bachelor's, then you have to have that before you get the master's, and then you have to have that before you get the doctoral degree. I think you're going to see, let me say it this way. I think we have to figure out ways to blow apart those arbitrary credential barriers. I see it as much more of a constant in and out learning ecosystem that has all types of learning embedded. I feel that's fascinating because myself, I think sometimes when I look at higher education and a lot of other institutions, I'm from the UK and I grew up there. I was born there and grew up there until I was about 12. So I think the way that I view education, healthcare, a lot of um, institutions and systems, when we think about equity and access is a lot different just because this is different to me. The United States, I think, does things a lot differently than most of Europe and the rest of the world. How are we, do you think, going to address some of the issues when we think about uh, the return on investment and, like you said, being able to, for students, have more flexibility with that model? I think sometimes what happens in higher ed is, in the U.S., is we're very strictly this is how it is. We are very focused on the idea that you have to take four years to do your bachelor's degree. In in UK, for example, it's three years. Mm -hmm. uh, students, like you said, they can go into necessarily um, doctoral study and, and it's very fluid in terms of um, a little bit more. Um, you could do maybe a master's degree program in, in conjunction with your bachelor's. And, and we do have programs such as that here in the US, but I think they tend to be more of an anomaly rather than something that's typical, you know, to do, a, if someone does a bachelor's degree in three years, like, wow, what did you do? That's like phenomenal. Whereas it's the norm there. What do you think it will take just putting on your leader hat and just the perspective change or reimagining? What would you suggest or what are some of the tips and strategies you would give for leaders to reframe the way that they look at the programs and, and the structure modality or for even above the, the, the uh, institutional level at the accreditation at the state level, at the national level, how are we going to accomplish this, do you think, this reframing of, of the way that we offer our programs? I think, um, first of all, again, back to that broad diversity of institutions and missions that are out there, I think there will be um, many, many, many who um, stay true to the traditional higher ed, and that's good too, right? That's fine as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think choice is key here. But I think we have to stop talking internally about higher education and to higher educators and start listening to what the world needs and what the consumers are wanting, what our students are wanting. And I think it's naturally changing. You know, take a look now, you have a lot of um, pop up. Um, degrees that are from the RN, which is essentially akin to an associate degree, direct to an MSN. And already science moves directly from bachelor's directly to the PhD, right? And postdocs and things like that. So there are pathways out there that are examples. It's just not in the more typical channels. And because we have been in the US so averse to higher education that focuses on the professions or focuses on careers. And there's reason for that. Um, so first we, we, we have to stop, we have to get outside ourselves and we have to start listening and being open to those possibilities of, of what's there only. And, and then we have to find the pockets of people who are willing to test, to experiment. We need to find a funder who's willing to you know, step up and say, look, I'll, I'll give you $10 million to test a team-based degree. 
within an industry and let's see if you can produce a team that can be hired as a team or is already a team within that industry and see see what that looks like see see what the difference is there and i would push it even further if you really step back and we think about what we'd most i don't know if i'll say like but what would be most head rattling imagine if truly you could have the personalization to such a nature that you, Liz Liba, or you, Joe Salustio, you guys know what you really have learned well, and you know where your real learning gaps are. Imagine if you actually could have an ongoing relationship with an entity that can actually say, okay, Joe Salustio, we know that you want skills in XYZ and you need them in XYZ. We're going to tailor and make it possible for you to really learn XYZ so that you can excel and advance in the job. And, and we have all the tools and technologies to do that. We're just, we're just, we're not willing to step outside the boundary because we're so fearful in higher ed that that's going to break the big tradition of college as a major rite of passage. And I don't think it will. I think we're talking working adults here. I think we, I, I think there's room for many models, not just one. And I have to say this before Joe jumps in because I know that he will, but I think it reminds me of like the rite of passage of hanging out at the mall, right? Like when I was a kid, <laughs> the, the malls weren't around when Joe was young. With Joe, they 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 had that, what is a mall? Stage, <laughs> they had stage coaches, and you had to go into town to get your groceries from. This, this, the, this the general store. store. General store, there you go. No, the Wells Fargo wagon brought him his stuff. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But that was like a rite of passage. You hung out at the mall. That was where you socialized. That was where you met your friends. And 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 literally, I grew up at the mall. My kids now have no idea of what that is. They go on Amazon. They're shopping. They're grabbing things. And I think there was that same thing with Blockbuster. Friday night was walking around in a circle, round around Blockbuster, trying to pick a movie. And the movie you want inevitably would not be there. And that was like our rite of passage hanging out, I think in college at that point on a Friday or Saturday night. And Netflix and Amazon took our suggestions, right? When you go into mm -hmm. your queue, they know what you want. They know what you need. They've been, and, and that's why we feel so much of a, I guess, allegiance to them. You know, we don't want to, even if we're not watching Netflix this month, we don't want to cancel. We don't want to cancel our Amazon Prime because they know us and they have all our suggestions and they have our cart. And, and it's reimagined how we shop, it's reimagined how we watch our programming, but it's made it that much better. And I, I'm so glad that you said that because it is apropos that we have been able to change in a lot of different areas and, and make our experience better, whether it's in entertainment or shopping or whatever the case may be. But for some reason, there's still that resistance with education. So I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's really, I think, a very salient point. Joe? Joe, let me actually, Joe, I'm going to jump Go in here. So let me ask you guys this question or think about it. You know, we all benefited from what was called general education, right? This idea yeah. of depth and breadth, this diversity. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I would like to challenge every leader out there, all the academic leaders and provosts, is if we were to create the new general education, the learning that everybody really needs, what would that look like? And I'm gonna put this on, I think we're in a Hamilton moment. I think we really have to rethink how our whole nation and how we are working within and among each other and the rest of the world. What does general education look like now? 
Buffet of courses? Is that what we need? If you're experiencing any level of marketing challenge right now, you've got to ask the hard questions and you need answers. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your future students? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience and future students will respond to? And are you spending more time building reporting than listening in on what your students really want? All of these questions will get answered when you sign up for your free consultation with MDT Marketing. Head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, and talk to MDT. Don't go it alone. Find the right partner. The guys at MDT, the team at MDT is absolutely amazing. Whether your challenge is the cost of inquiries, your melt, your branding, the bad and incomplete information that come with your inquiries, whatever it is, an audit of your challenges will help your institution and it's free. mdtmarketing.com slash edup. Podcasts, podcast episodes, perhaps? Is that, <laughs> I always wish that general education could be things that were more aligned with my major and things that I really needed to support my study and things that were, were interesting to me. Like I took biology, I took um, algebra, I took a lot of things that as a journalism major really didn't help me, but I took um, study of women in Africa, I took like... Um, exceptional people. I took things that were interesting and things that really, I think, engaged me and, and made me a better person. I even took theater appreciation and African-American um, lit and studies and things that I think made me better. Because I think some of the things I will, if students don't take some of these courses, they won't be able to have a, a breadth of understanding about the world around them. And I think we can trust students to pick and choose things that are of interest to them and will enhance their learning journey and not necessarily, oh, you have to take calc, you have to take, um, you know, anatomy and physiology and things that like, I'm never going to need to know that because I'm not in the healthcare field. But if I was, then that would be something that would be appropriate, I think. So yeah, I think that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. And, and taking it deep enough that forces real change, right? Yes. So let me draw an analogy here. So for me, the best general education is like the best efforts in diversity, equity, inclusion right now. I'm seeing a whole lot of activity around diversity, equity, inclusion, and it runs kind of along the surface, but we all know we got to get really deep. We've got to extend those conversations into places where there's rage and pain and concern, and it, it gets very uncomfortable. That's also the purpose of gen ed, right? So why are we not talking climate change, real inclusion, the dysfunction of Congress, the um, what it takes to really be leaders who leap to be mindful, eager to actually dialogue and, and change based on what their employees are telling them. I, I, that's, there's something there that we've got to get back to that's so general and so critical and so important that we aren't talking about. We're just happy with the same buffet of courses. Well, let's shift your, yeah, no, go, go ahead, ahead, Joe. Yeah. No, I was going to say, you go first. Okay, I was just going to say, particularly in STEM, okay, sometimes I think STEM, you know, the whole movement around STEM, great movement, but I think we've lost it in kind of the shallowness of that acronym, in just saying it's STEM, as opposed to really grappling with what does it mean to think scientifically, technically, um, it, it, through engineering and math, right? There's depth that we're missing here. We seem to be living on the surface. Okay, Joe, sorry. No, that's okay. Um, I do want to shift gears because I, I want to talk about Claremont Lincoln a little bit, but I want to I want to hit you with the true or false question first. 
or, or it could be, I don't know what kind of question it is, but let's just be honest here and say that I am by far the best employee you've ever had. And I don't know if you, that's a true or false or something you'd like to elaborate on. And also simultaneously the best ed up host that's oh, ever existed. This is getting cringeworthy. Oh. Are you cringing? I am not cringing. <laughs> I, get it. I don't want Lynn to, I don't want her to embarrass you on the air in front of everybody. <laughs> it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be the first time. Let me tell you, Liz, that Liz, but, but uh, all right. So let's get serious for a minute. Lynn, we, Claremont Lincoln University, where you and I both work, um, and we wouldn't work um, knowing each other prior to uh, Claremont Lincoln University. Neither of us would work for an institution that wasn't at the front end. It wasn't at the cutting edge of change. And um, that's been something that I think has been central to both of our careers. Uh, Claremont Lincoln University, socially conscious education. What is different about CLU? Why did you take a presidency in the middle of COVID? and upend your life in ways that we don't need to get into, uh, but, but taking on a big job of, of leading a small private um, uh, institution at the graduate level at the front end, but it's still a big challenge in today's world. It's competitive higher ed, it's, it's changing. What's led you to take this presidency and why CLU? So, you know, I, you know me well enough, Joe, to know that I always move to the edge of possibility, okay? That I am, I am a person that's constantly striving to figure out how do we reach and develop all of the talent and all of the people across all our socioeconomic quartiles and all members of our population so everyone can live an abundant life, right? And give to others. So, when you told me about CLU, I thought, what is this? The golden rule. And then, and then I, I started studying the institution and Claremont Lincoln University, what makes it distinctive is how it has created a culture that reflects this different type of living and working together. It, it, if you just want to picture it, it assumes that we can together, and I would do it by groups, but we're doing it individually now, create an entirely new leadership ecosystem. And I said this a little earlier, just imagine if our, our um, Congress people, our senators and our representatives were eager and just grappling to talk to each other, to learn more, to figure out how to negotiate, come to consensus, find a third way. They want to dialogue. They want to collaborate. They absolutely wake up every morning wanting to work together for the betterment of their community, their state, and the country. Okay? CLU has a culture in which it's embedding into the students who attend a way of learning and thinking and working, a leadership set of principles, whether you want to call it the golden rule, the platinum rule, or just real deep respect for the planet, all the people, and the change we need to create to live in a better world. Why wouldn't everyone want to attend CLU? Any degree you take, your general education is becoming a better person together with everyone else committed to making my part of the world positive, 
focus on social justice, environmental justice, change that makes a difference for our children, our churches, our businesses, our young people, our old people, our folks with disabilities, our um, LGBTQIA, all the ethnicities. It, it, it literally strives to create a different abundant life. That's what CLU does. That's the Claremont core. And at the same time, it drives it into a career, right? And the careers are leading a nonprofit, becoming a public administrator, leading an organization of any sort. And now this, and, and, and there's others, but other degrees, but come back to this and, and say now, but we're, if we continue to just educate individuals, we're sending individuals out in the world to make this change in businesses, cities, organizations, um, ecosystems where their one person admits many. So CLU has this ambitious vision to create an entire ecosystem. We need tens of thousands of graduates from CLU to change our world. That's why I'm at CLU. Liz, you want to pop in on that? Because I know you probably have a few questions. I, I, I don't want to monopolize here, but I, the reason I'm asking you is because the way Lynn speaks about it, it's inspirational, right? And we've talked to a high, a lot of higher ed presidents and leaders that say similar things, but the question is, how do you achieve it? Because we know there's equity gaps. We know there's wealth gaps. We know there's, there's uh, a lack of fairness in the admissions processes, in tra credit transfer policies, but to know that we have futurists and amazing leaders out there that are getting this job done at certain institutions, it does bring some hope. Yeah, I agree. I think for me, this year has definitely been one of self-reflection. And one thing I think about in terms of higher education is how we take these really high ideals of what we do as a sector and incorporate that into every area, like uh, Joe alluded to, how can we incorporate that into not only the student outcomes, but also the process in terms of financial aid and access? Uh, how do we incorporate that into making sure that our faculty and our leadership are reflective of uh, what we know over the next 20 years or so is going to be um, a multicultural majority, right? And it seems to me that everything, the ideals that you spoke about in the mission at Claremont Lincoln is so amazing. Why don't we see that embedded and, and um, intertwined and really embraced, do you think, across higher education as a whole? You know, I think there's some uh, I think there's some cynicism there. I think that things such as mindfulness and that kind of big vision and that massive, you know, rose-colored glasses kind of view is kind of poo-pooed. And I think that's okay. I think that's okay. Again, back to that diversity. So I think, and I think that their institutions have their own missions and they may be about something else. I have always been about the working adult that was not the best high school student, but doggone it, they wanna make change. And now they're an adult and now they have kids and they wanna figure out how to create a better world or better themselves. And 
and doors are shut all over the place. And too often it's due to um, reasons of being disadvantaged, whether it's for ethnicity, religion, or disability, or whatever it might be, lifestyle, any of those, um, the, the, the doors shut too often. Even in the public institutions, they don't thrive. And, and what Claremont Lincoln does is say, come this way. We are really grounded in letting you become a better person and everything you do in every class is something you can apply. One of the things we try to do in our curricula is that anytime the student engages, they are learning something that they literally can take and apply today, not when they're out after the degree, but today. It's, it's how do you be an everyday activist? What did you do in the discussions, in the assignments, in your work with your peers, in the engagement with the faculty that you can make a change in yourself, your family, your church, your community, whatever it is, today, today, apply it today. That's kind of the difference. That's distinctive, that nimbleness, that flexibility is distinctive to Celia. It's distinctive probably to other institutions as well, but I think we're a smaller number of graduate institutions than the larger number. I love that you said everyday activists, because a lot of times in terms of the work that I've done in social justice and advocating for equity over the past year, people will say, well, I don't know where to start. I'm not sure what I should do. I don't really know anything about this. I don't want to offend. And one of the first things I always say is you have your sphere of influence and everybody does. So it might be just your household. It might be looking at your kid's play area and saying, hey, how can I make this more diverse so that my kids understand the value of different kinds of people? How do you think we instill that, that philosophy that you mentioned about being able to take those philosophies and principles and apply them the next day as you interact with different types of people, just from a philosophical point of view, not just at Claremont, but just in general, what do you think would be the best advice or strategy as a community, as a country, as a global community to make people more aware of how much influence they have and how they can apply that influence for those that don't look like them? Well, at the higher ed level, that's why I say we have to rethink gen ed. Remember, education is about creating citizens who create the culture, who create the country, who create, right? But, but but I think we have to start much, much earlier. Um, you, know, you know, there's this, uh, this, this wonderful, Mary Lee Settle is a fabulous author. She writes historical fiction, but she often would say something to the akin that you were born on August, name your date and your month, but, but who you are started a generation or two before the day you were born, right? We have to start with each of us today and, and with our kids. And I think, I don't think, I think we've lost our way in our purpose with schools right now. I think we're really struggling as a nation as how do schools fit in, but I, I think that's okay. Struggle usually begets learning. Learning usually creates change. And then you add into that all the social unrest this year with George Floyd and at, you know everything else that's augmented it and all the hate crimes and all of the killings and COVID, and you, you, it accelerates us having to, having to look at ourselves and say, is this really what we wanna be? So I don't think there's an easy answer. And I think that's okay, because I think sometimes 
we like to jump to easy answers, like a training program on DEI, as opposed to really sitting down and understanding how much all of us have contributed to things not being inclusive, not being equitable, and not being diverse in higher ed. It's, it's uh, hard, if you really sit back and look at the data of higher ed and its track record, it's not a very good one. So, um, I think it's I not. got us way off. Tra- I think I got us no, way off not. track there. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And and um, you know, one of the things that you bring up is important that you know the at the and I said it earlier the equity gaps, the the wealth gaps. There's the post secondary value commission report that came out uh, uh, from the Gates Foundation talking about mm-hmm. those gaps that exist. What's what the action steps are? One of them being make sure you have faculty and staff that are diverse to reflect the diversity of the students that you're trying to recruit and attempting to recruit. How important is that at Claremont Lincoln? How intentional is the hiring processes? Because I will tell you, and Liz knows this as well, that varies from institution to institution. Yeah, it's been very intentional at Claremont, Claremont Lincoln, particularly in the past year, year and a half. And there's even a couple um, more things that are happening that Joe, you don't even know about yet. <laughs> I haven't gotten to you because you've been busy with your house to right. talk to you about that is going to increase the diversity um, within the senior team, in fact. And um, you have to, it's got to be intentional hiring and intentional hiring of people who are different and think differently and will challenge your own thinking. And that's, that's hard to do. Right, because people naturally um, are drawn to folks who are like them um, in a whole host of ways, in a whole host of levels. So it it has to be if we are really going to make a difference with our set of degrees in creating positive social change, we have to have faculty and staff who are who represent the communities that have been disadvantaged for so long, whether it's due to land policy, taxation, um, funding flows, the way highways are built, uh, the, the arbitrary and capricious ways that people are held down into certain economic sectors. We have to purposely hire those folks. And then we have to go out to find the students. And then we have to take help the employers understand, stop hiring talent just from the economic quartiles you know and the institutions you recognize. Start digging deep, commit to talent in economic quartiles and communities you're not used to recruiting from and begin to recruit from and then invest in that kind of diversity in your own workplace. It's, it's this whole pipeline thing. Um, and it starts with where, where, where you're born, where your house is, and the family you grew up in. You know, it's interesting you say that, Lynn, because I was on a, oh, I was on a, I, I was a guest on somebody else's podcast recently, and the, and the, the, uh, the piece about educational branding came up. You know, how, how important is educational brand? The name recognition brings an air of, of accomplishment. And, lead. and the question was posed to me, you know, something like, you know, are you, you know, would you be excited to get this Ivy League president if you could get them on your podcast or whatever? And my answer was, sure. But I'd also be excited to get a community college president, a private college president, a, a public college president. 
because I don't look at any one of those universities as better than another. And that's a stigma. That's a, 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 it's almost like a societal, it's created. It's created by parents that are competitive with each other, probably more than anyone. We were talking to a, uh, Dr. Michael Baston from um, a Rockland Community College in New York, and he was talking about it's a, a lot of it's the parents. It's a lot of it's the mm-hmm. parents at the barbecue just competing with each other to say, oh, my kid goes here. Oh, my kid goes there. I'm an adult and I've gone here. And oh, well, I, you know, I went over here. It's like, go where you think the best education is and own it. Where can you get the best possible education that is the right fit for you and own it? Because you're always going to represent your institution. And who cares about this other institution in it, the way it positions itself? It's not any better. It's not any worse. It's just another institution that just happens to have a billion dollar endowment. It doesn't mean the learning is different. Yeah, you're saying very dangerous things there, Joe. <laughs> but you're well, but, that's what I do but, over here on the Adip experience. <laughs> but you're right. But you're right. Right. It 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 is. It's always think about it. It's always well. Where did your kid go to school? Oh well, blah 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 blah. blah. Versus Cornell, <laughs> Harvard, Yale, right? USC, Penn State, Michigan, uh, University of Chicago, right? University of University of Florida. <laughs> yeah. Hey, University of Florida is great. I mean, when you take you take. Sorry. Go Gators. <laughs> I mean, but it, it, it is, it's really, again, we got to go back to the history of higher ed, what it was created for. And um, remember, it's a pretty young experiment in terms of access, affordability, and real equity in terms of post-secondary education. Okay. And, and, you know, and, and, and Liz, I'm just thinking what's going through my head now is the German model, you know, and the, and the European model. Um, there's no, you know, there's not nearly the stigma of moving into the career kind of track or the workforce track versus the, um, the uh, classic institution track. But in the United States, there is. We have this, this interesting stigma because of the way we created higher education. And again, there... Um, there is purpose for every type of institution. And we just need to step back and now talk about what learning is needed for whom, when, and what does that mean we do next for our entire population? And it's, it's, a, hu- it's a huge picture. Um, I mean, it's a, hu- it's a huge issue, so. Liz, you wanna take us home? Absolutely, I am like, I could speak with you for another hour because I love your perspective and, and how thoughtful you are in terms of framing this in more of a futurist perspective. So we really appreciate your insight and this wealth of knowledge and breadth of experience that you've brought to us today. We just want to close out with our last couple of questions, which would be first and foremost, if there's anything that we have Miss, anything that you want to talk about in terms of your institution and any initiatives or, or things that are coming on the horizon that you might want to share with our listeners? And the second question would be, what do you see as the future of higher education? Well, the first one, I would encourage anyone who really is trying to dig deep and reevaluate themselves and really wants to become a different type of leader the type of leader that creates what we want to become as a country next, check out CLU. Handful of degrees, masters only, very affordable, very accessible online. It's online by design. 
faculty that will push you to become a better person, to apply something every day. I, you know, whether it's the public administration degree for which we're 15% off. I mean, you can, and, and we have a fellowship um, that's, that's out there to really try and spark um, a cohort of leaders who can think together about what we need to do with our cities to make them sustainable from a climate perspective, as well as abundant from a people perspective. So Claremont, Claremont Lincoln's worth taking a look and worth joining this cause to see what we can create next. It's tiny, tiny, but come, come, come look at us. Call me up, I'll talk to you forever. So the future of higher education, I, I really think that um, we will evolve at some point. And when I say we, I, I think the adult working population, I think there's a long time before um, you know, P16 and traditional higher ed will shift. Cause I think there are many more reasons that we have traditional institutions, particularly at the undergraduate level. And those traditions are deeply embedded and that will take some massive um, shifting in time. But for the working adult population and for those of us who have the credentials and are now trying to live in this fast paced world, I think higher ed will create with very different partners an entire learning ecosystem that's much more like constant fitness of the mind, fitness of life, fitness of work, so that you are, it's, it's, it's something you are doing continuously. Now, how an institution fits into that, I think we have to think very hard about. And, and, but it is, it, is, it is not chunked in credentials. It's not even chunked in micro credentials, even though those will be all part of it or certificates and the industry degrees and all those, it will be a complete shift to ongoing understanding of what each of us needs to learn next in order to be our best individually and together for some purpose. And that purpose will be myriad reasons, depending on who you are. So it's, it's a, an ecosystem of continuous learning. And there are even some models out there. Um, one's, one's coming on the market pretty soon. Uh, for anybody who knows Linda Baer, B-A-E-R, and Don Norris, they are really working on what would it look like if a state system shifted to become a learning ecosystem with a membership, membership or subscription-based learning tied directly to major fields as well as major world, world causes and change. So that's what I think. And before you go, Lynn, I, I, and Liz, uh, on Liz's behalf, on Elvin's behalf, it, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, uh, and thank you for being uh, the most recent sponsor to back the EdUp Experience podcast. We um, have been at this for a year and to know that Claremont Lincoln University and you are behind our efforts here at EdUp to bring this conversation to higher education, to bring the message of Claremont Lincoln as a sponsor to, to our audience is very important to us. And we would just want to say thank you for, for uh, really getting behind this experience of EdUp to, to help change, help bring this change to higher ed. Well, thank you. No, absolutely. You guys are making a mark. And can I say one more thing to all the other leaders out there? Of course. Keep learning and loosen up. Listen to your people in terms of coming back into the office. Listen hard. There's a lot of fear out there. Don't just assume it makes sense for everybody to come back to the office every day of the week from eight to 530. 
there may be another way to create living, working together. And higher ed's good at that. So loosen up and listen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the EdUp Experience with our amazing guest, an important one to me. Her name is Dr. Lynn Pretty, and she's president of Claremont Lincoln University. Lynn, thank you for joining us today. Hey, everybody. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the EdUp Experience. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit our website at www edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.